आचर्यवचनमशुनोदि ಭಾರತಿಕ್ಷಾಕ್ಷತ್ರಿಯಸ್ತ್ರಿಯೇ ಯದೃಚ್ಛಯಾಚೋಪನ್ನಸ್ವರ್ಗದ್ವಾರಮಾಗತಿಚ್ಛತ್ರಿಯಾಪಾತಾಲಭಂದೇಯುಧಮೀ
सिद्ध्योतमो भूतवाच्यते दूरेणर कर्मा बुद्धिगाधनंजय बुद्ध शरणमृच्छा प्रपणाफलेतवा बुद्धियुक्त जहातीहादुष्कृति तस्मा युज्यस्वायोगकर्मसु कौशल कर्मज बुद्धियुक्ता बलम चमीषिण जन्म बंदरीर्मुक्ता पदम गाँ यदा मोहकलिलुद्धिगरीद ृत्यकाशाचेतवाच प्रजहादीलाकाम ृष्टिदा ृष्टिदेन्द्रियाषयाषु ृष्टिदाभवतीमोहाुद्धिनाशोद्धिनाशात्मेदेत्मदिगछति ृष्टिदुखा महाभाव 
There are two ways in which Lord Krishna could have solved Arjuna's problem. The first is the ethical solution, which is an easy way, which the Lord states but does not accept. On one side is the dharma of the man of action, a struggle on the physical plane between the powers of right and justice against the powers of wrong and injustice. The ethical sense condemns the act as a sin and insists on ahimsa or non-violence as the highest law of spiritual life. As Arjuna states, he can fight the battle either on the ethical plane of non-resistance or he can take the ascetic path and shun the action altogether. The Gita does not reject either of these paths. It recognizes Ahimsa as part of the highest spiritual, ethical ideal and admits that ascetic renunciation is one of the ways to spiritual salvation. But it takes its stand over and above both these positions. It justifies all life and existence as we know it, with all its discrepancies as a manifestation of the one divine being, and insists that a complete human action can and must be made compatible with a complete spiritual life lived in union with the divine. Not by shutting one's eyes to the disparities of life can one attain this, but by boldly marching forward through the din and clamor of life as we know it, now in our present state of consciousness. This march of the jiva or individual soul towards Godhead is done with knowledge and purpose is called yoga. The Sanskrit word yoga means unite. So any method employed by which one can unite with the infinite can be termed as yoga. The 18 chapters of the Bhagavad Gita are all known as yogas. Each one of them can lead us to God if used with knowledge. Knowledge is the keystone to all yoga. The crux of the message of the Gita is that any action is done with the knowledge and desire to attain union with the Divine can itself be termed a yoga. Thus, in the second chapter, at the beginning of the teaching itself, the Lord expounds to Arjuna the highest knowledge, which is the knowledge of the self. It may seem strange that this knowledge should be served at the beginning itself, since it is very difficult to grasp. But the Lord does it with a special purpose. The knowledge of the self cuts at the root of the human problem 
which was Arjuna's problem. The root cause of our unhappiness lies in our inability to know who we are. This might seem a strange statement to make, but the fact is that we do not know who we are. We may know many other things, like the distance to the moon, the depth of the ocean, and the square root of pi, but this basic fact of who we are, we do not know, not even the cleverest of us. We think we are the body, but it doesn't need much analysis to discover that this body, which has changed so much from babyhood to this present condition, cannot be the one which produces such a strong sense of identity in us. Even though my body has been ravaged by time, yet I myself am in no doubt as to my identity. So how can this ever-changing body be the final truth of myself? Now let us see if my mind or intellect is my true being. This is even less plausible. The body at least seems to remain the same for a period of a few years, but the mind is changing every minute, and the intellect also changes, though rather more slowly. The intellectual opinions I held in my teens are certainly different from what I hold now. But the I which knows these opinions is the same. So who or what is this I? The answer to this question was discovered by the seers of the Upanishads through a process of inquiry and meditation into the nature of supreme reality. They discovered that our unshakable belief in the existence of an unchanging entity in us was perfectly correct and right, since its basis is the unchangeable spirit within us, which they call the Atman. The very first words of Lord Krishna in the second chapter, which many people believe to be the actual beginning of the Gita is a confirmation of this idea. Ashochyan anvashochastram pratnyavadamscha bhashase gadasuna gadasunscha naunashojanti pandidaha You are grieving for that <coughs> which should not be grieved for, yet you speak like a man of wisdom. The truly wise neither worry for the living nor grieve for the dead. We worry and grieve for people, considering them to be mere bodies, lumps of flesh and blood held together by a skeleton of bones. But he who knows the truth underlying these lumps of flesh will not grieve if something happens to that body either through disease or death. These people 
arrayed in the battlefield, are not mere bodies, but the eternal, immortal spirit embodied in various human forms. The spirit is eternal and unborn. Natvevaham jadunasam, natvam meme janadipaha, nachaiva, nabhavishyama, sarve vayamadaparam. There was never a time when you or I or these kings did not exist, exist. Nor is it true that we shall cease to exist in the future, says the Lord to the bewildered Arjuna. Just as the body passes through childhood, youth and old age, so also it passes on to a new body after it casts off this one. This is just as easy and simple as a man casting off his old clothes in order to don new ones. What is there to worry over this? If anything, one should rejoice. The phenomenon of life is the progress of the Jivatma from individuality to universality, from creature to creature with birth and death as the means to its progress and unity with the divine as its final goal. Unable to see the existence of the Atman, which is the only reality in us, we superimpose reality on the body, which is unreal, in as much as it is ever-changing. Our sorrow for ourselves and for others arise from this original mistake. We do not realize that what gives a semblance of reality to this body is the spirit within. The house has no life of its own. It is the person who lives in it that gives life to the house. The house, like the body, is only an empty shell made out of the five elements and will revert to the elements from which it came out of one day or other. But, but the person or the reality within is not bound by that house and can easily shift to another house of his own liking. That by which all this is pervaded is imperishable <coughs> and no one can destroy that immutable reality. Weapons cannot cut it, fire cannot burn it, water cannot drown it, and wind cannot dry it. Thus spoke the Lord. This is the greatest truth of our reality that I am the Atman, the immortal and indestructible spirit which can never die, and the body is only its outer covering. But this is a truth which is very, very hard for the mind to grasp and even more to experience. And therefore, Krishna goes on to his next point. Even if you consider yourself to be the body, he says, yet 
you should not become over-attached to it, just as you should not become over-attached to any material possession of yours, because the death or destruction of that which is born is certain, just as its rebirth in another form is certain. This being an inevitable fact, a wise man should not grieve over it. A vase falls and breaks and returns to the earth from which it was made, and perhaps on another day it is recast in another form, another shape, even more beautiful than the last. So also Hindu philosophy asserts that this body, which is only a cloak for the spirit, will one day revert to the earth from which it was made of, and then on another day recombine in another form for the consummation of his spiritual journey. These bodies, he says, were unmanifest in the beginning, before birth, will become unmanifest in the end, after death, and are manifest only for a short period of time in the middle. How can we postulate reality to these? And why the attachment to them? The very basis of our grief is misplaced. We grieve for that which we should not grieve for, and mourn for that which never existed. Once we know the reality in us and in all things, there would be no further cause for grief, since we would see that all is spirit, deathless, shining, immutable. Something which is real cannot die, and that which passes away cannot be called real. The real has to be, it can never cease to be, and the unreal can never be. Nasado vidyade bhavo, nabhavo vidyade pataha. So when a person is said to have died, it is his unreality or body which has died, and never his reality or atman. The destruction of an existence is unthinkable, because that which is existent by the very laws of nature cannot be destroyed, and that which can be destroyed can never, except in a very temporary sense, be said to be existent. The phenomenon of death is visible to our eyes because of a mixing up of standpoints or superimposition of the reality of the spirit onto the body. The process of death is only a transition and not a destruction. A change of condition is what we call death, which is required by the law of evolution of the universe. In fact, 
we die every moment. Every moment, all the cells in our body are being renewed. Normally, change external to our cells is perceptible. But in the case of our own change, we are never aware of it. This is because there is something in us which never changes and on which all the change is superimposed like a movie picture on a white screen. The changing pictures have meaning only because of the unchanging white screen beneath. But this change is only a condition and not a substance. Therefore, this body, this changing thing, is not a reality. Our basic reality is the Atman, the soul, or the self, which is infinite and unborn. All change and evolution is a progress of the finite towards its reality, the infinite. This is the reason for birth, death, transmigration, and rebirth. The fear of death is due to our misconception as to its necessity. We are not punished by death. We are only educated by it. The Gita gives a simple analogy to bring home this point. We cast off one garment when it has become useless and put on another which is new. Who should grieve at such a delightful exchange of old clothes for new? Likewise, in the change of the body, we should not imagine that there is a real loss. All change, whatever be its nature, is a requirement of cosmic justice, and birth and death are part of this requirement. Therefore, Arjuna's sorrow stems from the fact that his vision is limited to the picture of life as given by the senses, and he is unable to see the higher requirements of the law of the cosmos. Arjuna's idea and our idea that death is an undesirable consequence that follows the battle of life is false. In the 20 verses, beginning from verse 11, the Lord enunciates the highest and most transcendental philosophy of Advaita or Manasin, which is found in the Upanishads and which was later actively preached by Adi Shankaracharya. The arguments given to Arjuna in the second chapter, proceed from many levels. The first and most important one is the metaphysical level. But Arjuna, like the rest of us, could not grasp this level. Or even if he could grasp it intellectually, he had not yet been able to experience it. And so the next argument of the Lord is from the social level 
in which we all stand and from which we all have to proceed in order to reach the metaphysical truth of our eternal spirit. This is the third great teaching of this chapter, namely the necessity for Swadharma. We have already seen that the word Dharma is the first word of the Gita and like most ancient scriptures, the first word is meant to give a clue to the purpose of the entire book. The word Dharma has been translated in many ways as law, religion, morality, etc. It means all this and even more. It comes from the Sanskrit root, dra, which means to uphold or protect. So dharma is that which can protect us, provided we uphold it. It is the law of being in each thing which makes it what it is, rather than anything else. For instance, the dharma of fire is to burn, the dharma of water is to wet, etc. In the higher aspect species, and in man particularly, it is not immediately apparent what this specific dharma is. He can have many dharmas or duties, since he is called upon to play many roles. He has one dharma as a son, and another as a father, and still another as a husband or an officer. So what is his real dharma? This difficult question is answered in the Bhagavad Gita. If the first word of the Gita is dharma, its last word is mama, which means my. So in a nutshell, the gospel of the Gita is an exposition on my dharma, or the dharma of man. An animal has only a single role to play in life, and so he has only a single law or dharma which he has to obey. He cannot help but obey the call of his particular dharma. Thus there is no dilemma for him. He has no choice and therefore no obligations. Man, however, is in another plane. There is no hard and fast rule of life which can be given to the whole of humanity, which it can follow at all stages of its life and yet find fulfillment. At every stage there is a separate dharma. This is the greatness of the teaching of the Bhagavad Gita. Be true to your swadharma or rule of your being and then you will evolve and progress spiritually. As you evolve, you will find that your swadharma seems to be changing, in which case one has to change. But to force a dharma or rule on oneself, just because it appears to be superior, 
is not being true to one's nature and therefore cannot bring anything but unhappiness to oneself and to others. The Gita accepts the fact that the values are relative and cannot be enforced on all indiscriminately. We cannot expect the same rule of conduct for a child as for an adult. In the spiritual life also, this is true. To expect <clears throat> all people to follow the same rule of conduct in all walks and stages of life and in all situations is as impractical as it is absurd and leads to the typical guilt complex which is imposed by most religious dictates. The vastness of the Gita's outlook and the all-embracing love which enfolds both saints and so-called sinners in the same divine embrace is such a lofty ideal that even to understand it one has to be evolved himself or the study may well be misunderstood as it has been by many. The Gita is addressed to Arjuna, the warrior, the Kshatriya hero whose duty or swadharma in life is that of war and protection of the innocent. The Gita is not addressed to the Brahmin or priest, in which case its message would have been totally different. In life, most of us are called upon to play the role of the fighter far more often than the priest. And hence the hero of the Gita is the Kshatriya, whose duty it is to protect and uphold the law and deliver his people from the grip of the tyrant. Unflinchingly, he has to do his duty and thus uphold the universal law of Dharma, even at the cost of sacrificing his ego-filled bonds to his relations. Do you move him?